This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker hosting uh, this evening from my bedroom because I'm a bit, a bit under the weather. Got the sniffles, a little bit of a sore throat, a little bit croaky. You might be able to hear that. Um, Aaron Bastani, you're joining me from your house. I think you're in tip-top shape when it comes to your health. How are you doing? I'm all good, Michael. Michael Walker is croaky and the crocuses are out. It's almost spring. I can't wait for tonight's conversation. What the hell is a crocus? Is that a flower? It's a flower, Michael. It's like the first flower right. of not even spring. It comes out now. They're even, they're even more eager than the daffodils. Okay, they're, uh, they're little white ones, aren't they? Yeah. We've got that right. Other colours yeah. too, but okay. yes. Okay, okay, good. I still live in London, you see. I haven't learned about the flowers. I know you've sort of, you've moved to new climbs. Uh, what are we going to be chatting about tonight? I shall tell you. Uh, Labour are really pushing forward the kind of lines we heard from the Conservatives before the 2010s. How worried should we be? Um, Joe Biden's fitness for office is back in the news because of a number of slip-ups and a pretty damning report from a special counsel. And Piers Morgan's show on Talk TV has come to an end. Is he making a positive decision to move to YouTube or has he been fired by Rupert Murdoch? We will discuss. First story, Benjamin Netanyahu has ordered the evacuation of Rafa in preparation for a ground invasion. Now, Rafa is the last area of the Strip, which is still free from Israeli ground troops. And there are over a million refugees in the city. These are people already displaced from other parts of Gaza. This video from Associated Press shows how the population of Rafa has swelled. Rafa is located on the Egyptian border and normally it's home to about 280,000 people. Those numbers have swelled to over one and a half million as people flee the fighting in other parts of Gaza. So Palestinians in Gaza have moved to Rafah because it is relatively safer than elsewhere in the Strip. It's still, of course, though, very, very far from safe. This is part of a report from yesterday on Al Jazeera. Mohammed, I didn't hear your voice for so many days, she says. But he's among the tens of thousands of Palestinians who've been silenced forever. The bodies kept coming as two more residential areas were targeted by Israeli forces. I swear to God, there is no safety. I fled Khan Yunus to Rafah. And here, they bombed us in Rafah. And the body bags keep piling up because Israel is intensifying its bombing of the densely populated southern Gaza. Now, this is one of the rare occasions when the United States have publicly pushed back against Israeli plans. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said this yesterday. I can tell you we've seen no plans that would convince us that they are... Uh, about to or imminently going to conduct any kind of major operations in Rafah. Um, I think you all know more than a million Palestinians are, are uh, sheltering in and around Rafah. Uh, that's where they were told to go. Uh, there's a lot of displaced people there, and the Israeli military has a special obligation as they conduct operations there or anywhere else to make sure that they're factoring in 
protection for uh, for innocent civilian life, particularly you know civilians that were were pushed into southern Gaza by operations further north, Khan Yunus and and North Gaza. Uh, I could tell you that uh, absent any uh, full consideration uh, of protecting civilians at that scale in Gaza. Um, military operations right now would be a disaster for those people, and it's not something that we would support. So John Kirby said there at the start, we have no intelligence that suggests that Israel is about to mount a campaign in Rafah. Well, the Americans could do with some better intelligence or some better friends, um, because within 24 hours of that statement, Israel announced this. Um, so these are tweets from the Prime Minister of Israel's account. The Prime Minister's office says it is impossible to achieve the goal of the war of eliminating Hamas by leaving four Hamas battalions in Rafah. On the contrary, it is clear that intense activity in Rafah requires that civilians evacuate the areas of combat. Therefore, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has ordered the IDF and the security establishment to submit to the cabinet a combined plan for evacuating the population and destroying the battalions. To discuss this latest development and more, I'm joined by Ben Jamal from Palestine Solidarity Campaign. And welcome back to the show. Um, ben, can I get you to start by sort of commenting on uh, this latest news from, from Rafa? You've got over a million um, refugees from elsewhere in Gaza there. And now Israel telling everyone to, to evacuate in preparation for a ground invasion. Over the past three plus, what, four months now, uh, we, I think all of us keep experiencing a sense of it is impossible for um, this to become any more horrific uh, for the Palestinian people in Gaza, um, and we keep being proved wrong. I mean, as you say, the, the sort of facts of this situation are, are, are pretty hard to process. You know, you, as the report you just showed made clear, there are um, about one and a half million people um, in Rafa, over a million of them have been displaced from elsewhere. Most of them left uh, the north of Gaza when Israel began its bombardment and Israel told people uh, to leave, effectively gave them a choice, leave northern Gaza or be killed. Uh, and actually we had Israeli government ministers suggesting you're responsible for your own deaths if you don't leave. Many of them went to Khan Yunis, then Israel bombed Khan Yunis, then they were told to go to Rafa. Um, and Israel has been bombing Rafa, but obviously now is is planning what it calls an evacuation, but is a forced expulsion. I, I heard an interview this morning, a live interview with a, a woman, Palestinian woman in Rafa, who basically said, I've been displaced six times now, uh, has young children, and put this question. Uh, she said, where is it I'm supposed to go? We have our back to the border and our face towards the sea. Uh, and the answer to that question that Benjamin Netanyahu is effectively giving is, I don't care where you go. This is an appalling situation. And as you said, we, we did have yesterday, you know, the development that has been increasing, at least rhetorically, uh, of the U.S. putting some pressure on Israel, saying, look, if you try to launch a military operation in Rafa, that would be unacceptable. But we hear the response from Israel, and, you know, I don't think anyone's going to be optimistic that the U.S. government will now say, well, we're not going to accept that, and therefore we will actually employ effective measures to stop you doing this. You know, our question has to be uh, the pressure that we need to put 
and our government to take action, uh, which for three and a half, four months hasn't been sitting silently by. It's been continuing to provide Israel with diplomatic, political, military and economic support. It's been green lighting what is clearly a genocide. But now we're in the next stage. And for some time, we know that uh, Israeli ministers have been um, furnishing plans uh, actually for a forced expulsion of the Palestinian population in Gaza into Egypt. And we may we may be seeing the big beginnings of that unfolding. Uh, you know, it may well be predictable that over the next few days and weeks, we're going to see a forced expulsion if Israel can persuade Egypt to open the border, um, framed as a humanitarian gesture, uh, but effectively would be uh, a second Nakba worse than the first Nakba, a mass ethnic cleansing, and nobody would have any confidence that Israel would ever allow those Palestinians to return home. There would be lots of pressure being put on Egypt now, although, I mean, as I understand it, sort of the Americans aren't particularly keen for Palestinians to go there because they're worried that then Egypt, and which is currently a, a US ally, might have a lot of political instability. So just you know, people between a rock and a hard place. Um, you mentioned there's sort of pressure on the UK government to not be supporting, essentially. I mean, they're not just, as you say, they're not standing back and watching on as this happens. They're actively arming the Israelis and supporting them diplomatically. Um, what is Palestine Solidarity Campaign's sort of latest priorities when it comes to this? I know sort of the demos are still going on. Lots of people are still turning out to the big national demos in, in London. Can you sort of talk to us about the, the latest in terms of the campaign? Look, we have a, a long-standing campaign and part of our message over the last three months is, you know, history didn't begin on October the 7th. Uh, what we have been calling a genocide for many weeks, and now obviously Israel has been, you know, that charge has been accepted uh, by the ICJ, who is now actively investigating whether Israel's committing the crime of genocide. With You know, our argument has been this, this is being built on the foundations of 75 years of settler colonization, ethnic cleansing, and the imposition of apartheid. So we have long-standing campaigns to address those root causes. For three months, as Palestinians have asked for, uh, us, the priority is to stop the genocide, uh, to mobilize popular power for a ceasefire. And we've been mobilizing across every front that we can. I think the most visible, obviously, are the national marches. We've now held eight national marches of uh, unprecedented size, up to a million people, you know, marched on Armistice Day. Um, we're still generating crowds of at least quarter of a million marching, but we're interspersing those with uh, local and regional days of action. And we're also trying to um, effectively harness that, that pressure into long-standing campaigns. And look, we're a solidarity organization. So, you know, our job is to give a message to the Palestinian people they don't stand alone, but to show active solidarity. And what they ask of us, they're always clear. What is it you need to do to demonstrate active solidarity? And it's um, end your complicity, end the complicity of your government, of your public bodies that continue to invest in companies and corporations uh, that effectively provide the infrastructure of support that enables apartheid to be sustained and end the complicity of those companies themselves. And one of our core campaigns, and we've stepped it up today, uh, is a campaign against Barclays Bank, which invests over a billion pounds uh, in more than nine companies that supply weapons uh, to Israel. And today uh, we have launched uh, an account closure 
as the next stage of that campaign. We've been picketing Barclays banks for a long time, trying to persuade people. But now we've take, we've urged people to collectively close their account. And today, at the launch of that, over 1,500 people have closed their account, and we're going to keep the momentum up. We're building to another account closure day on March the 21st, where we will be looking uh, for even greater numbers of people uh, to, to close their account on that day to put collective uh, pressure on the bank to end its complicity. What's specific about Barclays Bank? So in what way are Barclays a lot more implicated than, you know, HSBC or any other bank in the, in the UK? Well, there are, I mean, that's a valid point, and there are many banks we could have targeted. Barclays is not alone. Um, but strategically, um, we focus on specific targets, um, and Barclays has specific complicity in terms of the amount it invests. It also... Uh, invest one of the companies it's investing in is one that your viewers will be familiar with Elbit Systems uh, Israel's largest uh, arms manufacturer uh, which actively um, markets its weapons to the world uh, on the boast that they have been um, battle tested meaning tested on uh, Palestinians tested on Palestinian civilians many of them being used in Israel's uh, current assaults um, this is a particularly egregious company, and Barclays, uh, having dropped an investment uh, in Elbit uh, after a similar campaign some years ago, uh, reinvested. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we're targeting uh, Barclays. But part of the purpose of this, if we're successful in putting pressure on Barclays, and the thing that will matter to it most of all is obviously people closing their account, then it delivers a message uh, to other banks, and that's really how the strategy of boycott works. We we try to avoid a scattergun effect um, where people uh, go after random targets. We ask people collectively to focus on a core number of targets, and if we're successful in those campaigns, it, it delivers a message to other companies. Similar model to, um, you know, some of your viewers will recall uh, the campaigns against apartheid South Africa and Barclays will resonate with people because people with longer memories like me will recall that Barclays was one of the companies targeted because it was bankrolling apartheid. Well, it's now uh, here in the 21st century bankrolling genocide and bankrolling uh, Israeli apartheid. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Always a pleasure to have you on. Of course, if you do um, bank with Barclays, it's probably worth considering switching bank. And I, I assume also sending an email um, to your bank account to tell them what you're doing um, and to let Palestine Solidarity Campaign know that you have joined their campaign. Seems very worthwhile to me. We will go straight on to our next story. Lots to get through this evening. Labour has dropped its £28 billion a year commitment to invest in the green economy. Um, it is its biggest flip-flop Yet, but on question time, Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting tried to turn the move to Labour's advantage. It's actually because we're making difficult choices and because we're being honest about the fact we can't afford to do all the things we would like to do, that you should place even greater trust and greater confidence that the manifesto you'll see from Labour at the election is one that can be delivered and one that can be afforded. It is no secret that since we made that £28 billion announcement in 2021, the economy has changed for the worse, the cost of borrowing has quadrupled, and that is in no small part thanks to the disastrous mini-budget, which has not only trashed the nation's finances, 
It means that families across the country are having to make even harder choices than we are as politicians, like the parents who are having to put essentials back on the shelves in the supermarkets because they can't afford them because the prices have gone up, like the families who are having to tell their kids that this summer there won't be the holiday abroad because the mortgage has gone up, because the rent's gone up. So we make no apology, actually, for the fact we've had to take a long, hard look at the challenges facing the country, the promises we would like to make, and kick the tyres on every single one of them to ask those two questions. Can we deliver it? Can the country afford it? And if the answer to either of those questions is no, it ain't going in our manifesto. The alternative is where we've been before, frankly, where we've been over the last 14 years, which is promises made in elections, subsequently broken. And if there's one thing that's in even shorter supply in our country than money at the moment, it's trust in politics and politicians. So the challenge for the next Labour government, if we win the next election, is to rebuild the public finances and your family's finances, to rebuild our country and our public services, but also to rebuild trust in politics. And that is why we have had to look at our manifesto commitments very carefully and all of the policy ideas that are floating around and make sure that we can go into the election and look you in the eye and say every pledge we've made is a pledge that we can deliver and a pledge that the country can afford. And I think that's the right thing to do. And I'd rather get hard time now than let you down after the election. Now, I think that was undeniably quite an effective intervention from West Street, especially if you're thinking of the sort of swing voters that Labour are really concerned to appeal to at the next general election. And um, why is it effective? I think because one, it's, it's trying to reassure people who might be concerned about voting Labour who think that they'll spend lots of money and then increase taxes. And at the same time, you're getting in this attack on, on the Tories when it comes to economic management, which has been remarkably successful. Everyone seems to blame Liz Truss's mini budget for the fact that we have um, high interest rates. And I think it's only you know, partially um, to blame. Interest rates are up everywhere. Um, what's worrying, though, about this? So, I, you know, when people say oh, this is an, an electoral disaster, I, uh, to me, dropping the £28 billion, if you're thinking purely electorally, I can see the logic. The worry for me is that when they get elected, what are they going to do, right? If they get elected, what are they going to do? And why it's especially worrying is because in justifying dropping this £28 billion pledge, the Labour Party have adopted exactly the rhetoric which the Tories deployed in 2010. Um, let's look at Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, of course, speaking this morning. Why should anyone believe the things that you say about your plans when you are prepared if the circumstances require it, to just do other things. But it's very hard to know what we can believe. Well, in the almost three years that I've been Shadow Chancellor, I think people have heard loud and clear from me that fiscal responsibility, economic responsibility, are the most important things for me. Because it is absolutely essential that the public finances are managed well. And when economic circumstances change, your plans have to change as well. We all know that as, as, as families, that uh, when the money coming in is not as much as what it was previously, we have to adjust our own plans. And it's okay. true for governments as well. Okay. It's true for governments as well. We'll go on in a moment as to why that's not necessarily the case. But I think you will recall that that is exactly um, how the British public were primed for a decade of really, really destructive austerity based on that really poor economic analogy. And Rachel Reeves isn't, you know, she's not going off script there. Um, she's repeating what Keir Starmer said the day before. The reason for that is because since we announced the 28 billion, the Tories have done terrible damage to our economy, not just the Liz Truss 
uh, budget, but also now the government briefing that it's going to max out on the government credit card. So you've got the Rachel Reeves um, shadow chancellor, her line being sort of like the government is just like a household. Um, the Tories have, have basically emptied the bank account. And so now we can't afford to spend money on anything good. Um, Keir Starmer with a sort of even, um, I think, more wrong-headed analogy, essentially, which is to say they've, they've maxed out the credit card. Now, Britain's credit card is not in any way maxed out because it's still very easy for us to borrow essentially as much money we want, as we want, sorry, on, on, on financial markets. Now, the only concern, if you, if you just borrow sort of infinitely, then you will create inflation, of course. But if you borrow to invest in the productive economy, then that's likely to be quite helpful in the medium and long term. So how I think about this, day-to-day -day spending potentially is a bit like a household, right? You don't want to be spending more on public services and people's wages than you are getting in taxes. If, if you want to increase um, the quality of, of public services, as I do, then you're probably going to have to increase some taxes, as I would, you know, especially on the wealthiest in society. But unlike a household, we can essentially borrow unlimited amounts of money to invest in really valuable stuff, stuff that will increase productivity and growth in the long term. And then you're thinking more like a business, right? You're thinking more like a business. And actually, not even that much like a business because we can also print money. We've got quantitative easing. Of course, you don't want to do that unlimited degrees because then you'll get inflation. But this idea that we can't spend money if we're in a poor economic situation, I think is a disastrous one. It's also the opposite of Keynesianism, by the way. So Keynesianism sort of suggests when you have a, a bit of a downturn, that's the time to, to turn the taps on. Of course, we have close to full employment, so it wouldn't quite work in this situation. But Aaron, how worrying is this kind of rhetoric from the Labour Party? Well, it's deeply worrying uh, for a bunch of reasons. Like you say, Michael, uh, first of all, the analogy between a, a credit card and a state, a sovereign state, uh, is completely wrong-headed. Unlike much of the rest of Europe, we don't have the euro. We have actually, for once, an advantage in this country. Um, and yet we're not making the most of it. We haven't made the most of it. We had the exact same arguments, like you said, after 2010. And actually, it would never have been better to have invested in productive capacity and generate returns in the future. You know, people like to use this business analogy. Here's what businesses do. They get debt to invest in making money. You want to go start a business, you go to the bank, you get a business loan, you start the business, you pay back the loan, and after 10, 15 years, whatever, you're clear of uh, any um, loan repayments and you're just in the blue. And that's the case for every single asset you can imagine, whether it's social housing, uh, whether it's creating new nuclear power capacity, whether it's HS2, it's the exact same principle. Now, that doesn't mean all of them make money, but there are investments the state can make, such as, I think social housing is pretty obvious, um, which will generate returns for the taxpayer. There's a reason why private firms want to get involved in all of these things. It's because they make money. They're profitable, right? Uh, Macquarie didn't get involved in Thames Water out of the goodness of their heart. It makes money. Not huge money, not great returns. It's quite a low margin area water. Uh, but it certainly doesn't lose money. Uh, secondly, the interest rates that are paid by the taxpayer fundamentally on British debt, they're called gilts, um, that is still very low compared to the kinds of debt accessed by private financial actors. So if you're building a bridge and it's paid for by an asset management firm, or if it's paid for by UK debt, UK debt is cheaper to access to build that than the finance that is accessed by the asset management firm. So this idea, you know, it is still very cheap money, fundamentally. Again, doesn't mean you go willy-nilly with it. And Labour, one thing they are right on, very happy to say that, 
is that the increase of there has been a massive increase in borrowing, and that should be taken into account. Although the four times thing, I don't think is quite right because we saw ten-year gilt yields max out. I think towards the tail end of 2023, they've gone down again since. But regardless, and they could be significantly down probably by the time they come to power. They probably will be. Uh, but regardless, um, yes, you need caution, more caution than say two, three years ago. Uh, but it's still relatively cheap money. Uh, thirdly, this idea that the mini budget is to blame for inflation. I mean, Michael, everybody knows that prices have been going up since early 2022. Um, and of course, the mini budget didn't come along for a long time thereafter. So uh, yes, it's great for labor. I'm concerned that the media, and I say this to somebody on the left, I'm concerned the media aren't picking that apart more because it's absolutely reminiscent of the Tory line that Labour was somehow to blame for, for you know, the bank bailouts and the failure of the global financial system in 2007-8 wasn't true then, this isn't true now. That doesn't mean I like Liz Truss. That doesn't mean she didn't create an absolute clusterfuck, um, which, yes, had consequences. But this idea of high inflation and therefore high interest rates being a result of the Tories and Liz Truss and quasi Quarteng, not true. And look, Labour are a political party. Political parties are opportunists. That's the ism they generally believe in politicians, opportunism. Uh, but the media is there to point these kinds uh, of things out. And then my penultimate point, Michael, I've got one more point after this, is you can say all of this. You can say, look, we can't afford it. You can say all of that, okay? And you can say, we're going to be honest. We're going to be honest about not doing anything for you. You can say all of that. Fine. Good for you. And if people vote for you, great. If they get a majority of 300, obviously clever politics. But the point I really can't stand, Michael, is when you have Labour saying, we can't afford XYZ, we won't do XYZ, and then you still have people on the Labour benches, often, let's say, frankly, they're journalists, influencers, outriders, uh, people in the media. They'll say, this is still a very dramatic intervention of decarbonisation. It's a radical programme of decarbonisation. It's not. It's far less radical than Bidenomics, far less. Now, again, you could say, well, that's justified. We need to change the, the planning system before we invest loads of money. Whatever, fine, but it's not radical, okay? And it's certainly not going to lead to net zero anytime soon. And there is a deliberate elision between zero um, carbon electricity by 2030 and net zero. We are not looking to decarbonize. This, by the way, has been said in The Guardian, in the FT. Paul Mason has said it in his little medium pieces. There's this elision that is very important because decarbonizing electricity is the easy bit. And by the way, I don't think we're going to do that either because you're going to need to build lots of nuclear. I suspect that's what will happen. By 2030, Labour will have um, given planning permission for lots of nuclear plants. We would have built more renewable capacity. We won't be at 100% of electricity being renewable, but they'll say we now have the plans in place that by 2040 it will be. You know, just fucking stupid. They're lying to people, frankly. And people like Paul Mason, who say, actually, this is a really ambitious, radical plan to decolonize. They're lying. They're lying. It's not. They're li it's a lie. It's a political lie. So you can say we can't afford it. I mean, I don't agree with that. You don't agree with that. We've said why. But even if you do agree with that, there's a, there's a really big um, disjuncture between these two points. Finally, Michael, Labour will increase taxes. They will increase taxes. They have to increase taxes because they want to rearm. They want to do all these things they say they want to do, whether it's on uh, the NHS, whether it's on you know climate, although I don't think they'll do much of that, like I say. But then fundamentally, Michael, we have the major problem of an aging population. And it's very hard to cut uh, spending or to even to freeze spending in the context of an aging population, particularly on things like elderly care, 
uh, particularly on things like you know uh, you know healthcare just generally because of course healthcare conditions get very expensive for older people. Number one killer in this country now is dementia. Dementia is very expensive. Heart disease very cheap. Somebody has a heart attack, they live or die, and if they live, they can go back to broadly speaking most of the time their condition before. It doesn't mean they're fit and healthy, but they don't need 24 hours care every day, seven days a week. That is the case with dementia. With an aging population, that will be a political and social fact. Um, so that the tax thing, we won't increase taxes. I, I suspect they will. And to finish, you know, I think for the left now, people say, oh, the left has to be part of Starmerism. Look, you can do what you like. And I totally buy the argument, vote for Labour to get the Tories out. I totally, it's a legitimate argument. But I think the left now needs a strategy for day one, week one of a Labour government. What do we do and how do we oppose austerity 2.0? Because I really think there is not that much difference in the prospectus between Labour is offering in 2024 and what David Cameron offered in 2010. There is not much difference between their two fiscal rules, which is a segue to our next section. Both Labour and the Conservatives have committed Britain to the same fiscal rule, and it's this. By the end of the next parliament, or within five years, debt as a proportion of GDP should be falling. Now, it's an arbitrary rule. Um, it's a very technical rule, sort of picked out of thin air. Um, and it is the rule that we're often told is the reason why we can't have nice things, why we can't have high-speed rail um, that goes beyond Birmingham, why we can't have a green energy system why we can't have hospitals that don't fall down. Right? This is all because it would break the fiscal rule. As I say, it's arbitrary. And the proof is this. The Tories don't even understand it. And not just the Tories in general, the chief financial secretary to the Treasury. So the person who's supposed to be totting up all the numbers. You know, They work for the chancellors, the person with the big ideas, the chief financial secretary to the Treasury is supposed to tot up all, all the numbers and make sure it, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's. Well, um, she's called Laura Trott, and she doesn't understand the fiscal rule. Um, she was speaking yesterday on Radio 4 to Evan Davies. What is puzzling me is how you can be even talking about tax cuts when a central pledge is getting debt down and debt is going up. So the central pledge is one of our fiscal rules, which the, is that debt needs to be falling over the five-year fiscal forecast as a percentage of GDP, which, which it is. No, it's uh, higher it's, in five years than now. Not as a percentage of GDP. Yeah, yeah no, it's higher. It's going up. It's, it's lower in the fifth year relative to the fourth year. So it goes down at the end of the projection. But in five years, I think it's higher in, at the end of the project. Yeah, 23, 4, 89% of GDP. 28.9, it's 93% of GDP. Debt goes up. It falls at the end of five years a little yes. bit. But that, that doesn't mean debt is coming down. That means debt is going up. It's higher. It's higher in five years than now. It's falling as a, well, as a percentage of GDP. Is no, there, it's higher as a percentage of GDP. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think well, this is really it's... basic. I'm looking at the latest OBR table. Public sector net debt, debt ex-Bank of England, 28.9, 92.8%. 23.4%. 89%. So it's up in five years. Now, I'm amazed that you don't know that debt is rising, but you're no, the one who's planning. Of GDP, I'm looking at the percentage of GDP. Uh, this is, I think I need to have the figures. I, I've got different figures, which I just, which, uh, so I think we just need to. Okay. Yeah. Let's just suppose if debt yeah. is higher on the OBR forecast in five years than now, you couldn't possibly be cutting taxes while your pledge is that debt should be falling. 
The point is that we have our fiscal rules and within those we have an amount of headroom. So we will only do things that are fiscally responsible and sit within our fiscal rules. It's a really, really big point, this, isn't it? And one of us has obviously got it wrong. I think I'm looking at the right table and I think I'm looking at the right line. And it's possible that the figures will all change. But at the moment, it looks to me like debt is higher in five years than it is now. And you're still talking about tax cuts. And I'm just wondering how you do that if you're a pledging well, debt falling is one of your key, as a key five pledges. Percentage of GDP over the five-year forecast. Yes, and so, I'm, I'm looking so we at would the percentage always, of GDP line. Yeah, that's the only uh, relevant one. I am. Um, so I think that the uh, we've always said that we will only do things within our fiscal rules and where it is affordable for us to do so. So yes, we want to cut taxes. We believe that drives growth. But we will only do it if it sits within our fiscal rules. Laura Trott. Interesting conversation. We should probably both go and look at the books, make sure we haven't made a mistake. But obviously, a uh, really interesting uh, point about whether debt is going up or going down on your watch. So that was very embarrassing, I think, for the Chief Financial Secretary to the Treasury. Um, a very polite way for Evan Davies to end the interview. Um, but it was him, not Laura Trott, who did have his numbers correct. Now, according to the OBRs, the Office for Budget Responsibility, that's the, the official organisation tasked and we're doing the government's homework when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, they say that under the Tories' current plans, debt will be higher as a proportion of GDP in five years' time than it is right now. So I'm quoting from the latest OBR report here. Underlying public sector net debt, excluding the Bank of England, rises from 84.9% of GDP last year to a peak of 93.2% of GDP in 2026 to 2027, so higher, then falls slightly the final two years to 92.8% of GDP in 2028 to 2029. So at the moment, it's 84.9%. It will drop. Um, well, it, it will rise and then it will drop slightly to 92.8%. That's according to the OBR. I mean, then this is what the OBR says next. The government's primary fiscal target is for public sector debt, excluding the Bank of England, to fall in the final year of the forecast. On our central forecast, this rule is met by a margin of £13 billion, um, or 0.4% of GDP, up from £6.5 billion margin in our March forecast, where the target year was 2027 to 2028. This is a £6.5 billion improvement in headroom, and then they sort of explain the reasons why that has emerged. Um, so what everyone is debating at the moment when sort of Labour say the government are being really irresponsible because they've been given this £13 billion fiscal headroom, and they're going to spend it on tax cuts. If we got this £13 billion fiscal headroom, you know, we'd spend it on something more worthy. They're all debating within this framework, which, Aaron, to me, seems kind of dumb, right? And I think it's kind of evidence that it's kind of dumb that the Chief Financial Secretary to the Treasury, so the one person in the country who's supposed to be most responsible for this, doesn't understand it. So every, every budget, the Chancellor stands up and say, I have £6 billion headroom, I have £13 billion headroom. And it seems like these numbers are just being plucked from the air. None of them are real, Michael. There's a, there's a key insight for you. None of, none of this is real. All of us make believe. You know, the OBR, which was created by um, uh, George Osborne uh, straight after the 2010 general election. By the way, Labour and Rachel Reeves want to give it more power. They're saying any proposal, any budgetary proposal that we propose uh, has to be signed off by the OBR, which again is part of their permanent austerity mindset. Uh, now, the OBR said that the, <laughs> the deficit would be eliminated by 2015. They said this in 2010. Michael, it's 2024. We've had a deficit every year since. So th these people are political. Um, and, you know, the projections from the OBR in terms of deficits, debt, and so on, I think they were wrong every year from like 2010 to 2017. 
every year. So th this, this idea that we're going to base our, our tax on, they're all fake numbers. This is the thing, Michael, look, China does five-year plans. Now, you can have lots of criticisms of China, but so the, um, the political system is so ambiguous, we don't know who has power. They write it all down. They literally write down the industries they're going to put money into. Okay, microprocessors, synthetic biology, e-commerce, 5G, they write it all down. We have five-year plans based on like these fake numbers regarding our deficit, uh, and then the tax giveaways that allows. You know, we think we'll actually have, we'll, we'll be in less debt than we think in five years' time, therefore, scrap inheritance tax. You know, it's a crazy way for a government to be carrying on. They should be thinking, how do we build wealth? How do we build prosperity? It's the complete opposite mindset. You know, it's like somebody living, and I don't like to use the overdraft because we were talking about the credit card and public spending, but it's like somebody living in their overdraft because fundamentally deficits are fine, uh, but we should be trying to generate wealth. We should be trying to generate, create assets which generate wealth. We don't do that in this country. We haven't for a very long time. And the tax giveaways tend not to do that as we've really worked out over the last 30 years. It's like living in your um, overdraft, and of course, I'm sure many other people have been like this, I certainly was, you get 500 quid, you're still a thousand pounds overdrawn, and you say, you know what, I'm going to go on a bender. That's basically the tax giveaway that, that the Tories are looking at in this context, when instead they should be saying, no, actually, I want to invest in this money in something else, which will generate returns, social and economic, like social housing. No, no, we'll, we'll just give it away. So all of this debate is just so phony. It's not just about Laura Trott being not on top of the numbers, which she wasn't. Um, but also, just we, we're having conversations about, you know, what the OBR says in five years' time minus Bank of England debt. Why? Why minus Bank? Why minus Bank of England debt? Why? It's a public body. I mean, I know it's 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 a bit, you know, it's a bit. It's not quite. It's not like a quango or something, but it's it's a public body. The debt exists. It's real. It has a very clear um, relationship to the British state. So why would you not include Bank of England debt? When you do, by the way, it's close to 100% of GDP. And remember, in 2010, we had a debt to GDP of 60%, apparently end of the world. But now it's close to 100% when you include Bank of England debt. The Tories want to give tax giveaways. It's almost like austerity and the political program, which was offered by uh, George Osborne and David Cameron after 2010, and so obsequiously allowed by Nick Clegg, it's almost like that was complete bullshit. It was a hoax. Austerity was a hoax. We know that 14 years later, and yet we now have a Labour leader broadly saying the same thing. And then my final point, Michael, uh, which I understand, but still it's annoying, is that you know Evan, Evan uh, Davis had her on the hop. He had her on the hop. He'd caught her out, and he should have humiliated her. But he's a nice man. He's a nice man. And the cosy relationship in this country between politics and the media, because they're all in London, they all know each other, Predators often prey. Many journalists become politicians. Um, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't humiliate her. He should have, because this is a really important topic, Michael. This is life and death, okay? Public budgets and where we spend that money is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of where people are housed, when, can they access cancer treatment, uh, can their kids go to university. Those are the stakes. So when a government minister screws up so publicly, so royally, do not let them off the hook. Your public duty is to humiliate them and extract them uh, from them, rather, the truth, which is, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm completely incompetent. The government of this country has no handle on the public finances, and we should be booted out. I quite like his, his, um, his style, politely skewering someone, but I can see where you're coming from. Let's go on to our next story.
this is just as embarrassing as the last one. Joe Biden's biggest weakness in the upcoming presidential election will be surrounding concerns as to his cognitive ability. Um, on that front, this hasn't been a good week for him. On Monday, this happened. Right, right, right after I was elected, I went to a, what they call a G7 meeting, all the NATO leaders. I was in, I was in the south of England. And I sat down and I said, America's back. And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean, from France, looked at me and said, uh, said, you know, what, why, how, how long are you back for? It was Mitterrand from Germany. No, Mitterrand from France. I was a, thank God he corrected himself. Um, the problem was Mitterrand was president of France between 1981 and 1995, and he died in 1996. Um, so <laughs> wherever or not he got the country right, he was still talking about the wrong person. Of course, people do make mistakes. Macron, Mitterrand, they both start with the same letter. You can see how it happens. Unfortunately, though, for Biden, it happened again on Wednesday. Biden confused. Angela Merkel for Helmut Kohl in an anecdote he delivered to a fundraiser. Now, Kohl was Chancellor of Germany from 1982 um, to 1998 and died in 2017. Um, obviously, Helmut Kohl and Angela Merkel, there's, there's a gender difference. Um, they don't look much alike. Um, so unclear what's going on there. Um, last night, more bad news arrived for Joe Biden. So here, the special counsel appointed by Biden's Justice Department um, released a report on Joe Biden. Now, the investigation was into Joe Biden having um, had some classified documents at his house um, after his period as vice president. So as vice president, he you know, was allowed unlimited access to them. After he left office, he wasn't, but he had some in his garage. Um, the Justice Department then sort of appoints a special counsel to look into Joe Biden. They've released that report, and there is some good news and which is that Joe Biden won't be prosecuted for having you know, misplaced um, classified documents. The bad news, though, is the reason the special counsel gave. The special counsel wrote this. We have also considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview of him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Based on our direct interactions with and observations of him, he is someone for whom many jurors will want to identify reasonable doubt. It would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him, by then a former president well into his 80s, of a serious felony that requires a mental state of willfulness. So they're saying he's beyond the point where he can have a mental state of willfulness, which is worrying for a president. Um, elsewhere in the report, he said this. In his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended. And they quote him, if it was 2013, when did I stop being vice president? and forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began in, 20, in 2009. Am I still vice president? He did not remember even within several years when his son, Bo, died. Now, this is quite damning for a president. So saying he's not going to be prosecuted. He's only not going to be prosecuted because he doesn't seem you know, particularly competent of mind um, to stand in a dock. So the commander-in-chief, the most powerful person in the world, essentially, um, that's not particularly reassuring. We should be somewhat careful here, though, because it is likely um, that this could be a case of troublemaking by a rather political special counsel. Robert Hur is, or he was a special counsel. He's a registered Republican. Between 2018 and 2021, he served as the Trump-appointed district attorney to the state of Maryland. 
um, I'm sure he would have known that these comments would be damaging um, to a president running for re-election. It also seems to be not entirely necessary to put them into a document such as this. However, um, you know, even if this was political, kind of the Democrats who are to blame because it was Biden's justice secretary who appointed this guy to be special counsel. So I presume they were saying, well, if we get a Republican, then it's going to seem really fair. Well, if you get a Republican in a polarized system such as you have in the United States at the moment, um, you are you know, setting yourself up for, a, for, for some real difficulties. After the publication of the report, Biden held a hastily organized press conference where he was grilled about his memory. In his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad I let you speak. That's uh, that's that's my memory has gotten worse, Mr. President. My memory is not good. My memory is fine. My memory. Take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? I quite like that first thing. I am well-meaning. I am elderly, but I know what the hell I'm doing. Um, Unfortunately, at that same press conference, he went on to say this: the conduct of the response. In, Gaza, in the Gaza Strip has been um, over the top. I think that, uh, as you know, initially the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. I talked to Bibi to open the gate on the Israeli side. I mean, people often say that Joe Biden sort of mixes up the, the American interest with the Israeli interest. Now he's mixing up Americans' neighbors with Israeli neighbors. Um, he's calling Egypt Mexico, um, which is rather strange. Aaron, this has been a difficult week for Joe Biden, hasn't it? Well, you know, look, Michael, it happens. Mexicans, Egyptians, they're both quite ethnically ambiguous nations, you know. Uh, an Egyptian could easily be a Mexican. Uh, they tan very well. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a strange week, Michael. I'm obviously kidding. It's a ridiculous thing to say. Maybe he, I suppose they might say, well, borders. You know, we've got a border with Mexico. The issue with Egypt, Gaza, the border. I don't know. Um, but it has been a very difficult week. And Michael, th- th- this is really now coming to a head. Uh, he is now clearly in an advanced state of cognitive decline. This is not a joke. This is not a meme. Um, he probably wasn't entirely with it in 2020, but he he could function. You know, I remember having doubts about his cognitive abilities in one of the primary debates, and then he skewered Bernie Sanders. I don't know what the hell they injected him with, but he was on fire. So I thought, you know what? Okay. And Biden surprised all of us, probably including himself, in terms of um, beating Trump, right? I think that surprised lots of people. Of course, the surprise variable was um, COVID, and the margin of victory, because it's a you know a, um, a electoral college system, wasn't as big as it might have looked. But, you know, it was still impressive. And actually, his legislative agenda on some things has been very impressive. IRA, for instance, um, his, his relationship to unions, very good. I'm not disregarding any of that. I don't want Donald Trump to win. But equally, he clearly has advanced dementia, right? I mean, that second clip you showed, it's, it's like a guy who's just slowing down. His Duracell batteries are coming to an end, you know? 
Um, and any 81-year-old, this is not ages, it's not disrespecting older people, any 81-year-old is going to struggle being the president of the United States of America. Michael, you're in your early 30s, I'm in my late 30s. We would struggle to complete uh, a primary, right? If he wants to become the Republican candidate or the Democrat, anybody, anybody in the world, I mean, their 20s would struggle. It's a physical, emotional roller coaster. He's 81, with the hardest job, arguably, in the world, the most media exposure of any public figure on earth at a very important time for all of us. Uh, and, and clearly, he's not up to the job. And I, I don't think it's a left wing position to say, don't talk about it, just ignore it. Um, that's not adequate. Uh, because again, the stakes here are really high. And I think one of the reasons why, Michael, just to finish, Netanyahu's done what he has done in Rafa in the last 24 hours, the reason why they're ignoring John Kirby, humiliating the Americans, is, is because they know the commander-in-chief can't tie his own shoelaces. They know Joe Biden can't complete sentences. So what better opportunity, what better set of circumstances to, okay, if not um, get everybody out of Gaza, or 2.5 million Gazans, which I think they probably would like to do, many people in the Israeli government. Well, okay, at least we'll be able to create a buffer zone and get a, maybe half a million into Egypt or whatever. And that is that is directly related to the condition of Joe Biden. Now, that doesn't mean Donald Trump will be a better president for the Palestinian people. But I think, you know, it's important to remember, Rashid Khalidi said something really interesting earlier on this week. He said, Joe Biden as president has been worse for the Palestinian people than Donald Trump was. That doesn't mean, therefore, that Donald Trump after 2024 won't be any worse. He probably would be. Uh, but this idea that Biden has been better than Trump doesn't really add up. And so there are really big implications for his, his mental state being what it is. And frankly, I feel sorry for his kids, his grandkids, because this is how he will be remembered. And if he does win a second term, he, he won't complete it. He will be a laughingstock. You know, he will, he will clearly disintegrate. He will disintegrate in office. What do you think the Democrats are going to do? Because, I mean, uh, there, there are sort of um, precedents of, of, of a sitting president saying, I'm not going to run again. Um, Linda B. Johnson in the 1960s, but then he was was replaced, and then the Democrats got trashed um, by Richard Nixon that time around. So, you know, when I've been reading about this, people who sort of do recognize that Joe Biden is a bad candidate, they're sort of like, well, he's a bad candidate, but all the other alternatives seem just as bad. Now, I'm not convinced mm -hmm. by that argument, but I don't think it's a crazy argument either. Um, so, like, I, I mean, if I was them, I would just, you know, as, as quickly as possible, put in someone a bit younger and a bit more competent and then just all rally around him but or her. But that's not really how politics works, isn't it? Once a vacancy arrives, you know, then you end up with a big sort of, you know, circular firing squad potentially. The primaries have already began. I mean, what what can they do? No, it's too late. It's too late. It should have been Gavin Newsom. I don't share his politics, but he has had a big job. He's got a national profile. Um, he's got some kind of a record. I mean, Republicans would say a bad record, but he's got some kind of a record. Uh, California's done some pretty good things on green energy. So, you know, I think it probably should have been Newsom. Again, I'm not saying that's somebody on the left. I'm saying that's somebody who's trying to be impartial. I don't agree with his politics. Uh, but I think it's too late. And the point you've made about LBJ, really, really important, Michael. I think when uh, Lyndon Johnson stood down, he was in his 60s, right? I think Lyndon Johnson died quite young, mid, mid to late 60s. I think it was related to lung cancer. Um, you know, Biden's 81. And there's two separate points here, Michael, which is, could Joe Biden um, contest an election and win? Yes, he, he could, right? I actually think he, I don't think he would. I don't think he would, because the key polling in states like um, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, 
Ohio, even though Biden's leading often in polls with regards to the national vote, he's losing in those states. And there are four or five states, if he loses, it flips, right? Trump just needs to win four or five of these states and it flips and he wins the presidency. Uh, so it's close. But could Biden win? Yes, absolutely Biden can win. He did it before, so why can't he do it again, right? Very simple logic there. But then there's the separate question of, okay, well, would he, A, be a good president? I mean, he's, he's doing okay because he's got advisors around him and so on. He's clearly not all there, but they're still implementing a legislative agenda. But could they pull that off again? I think no. He, I think it brings American politics and public life and, and American democracy into disrepute. If, if you literally have a man in his early to mid-80s falling apart in, in the highest office of the land, I think it goes actually a lot deeper than party political interest. I think it completely undermines American democracy because literally hundreds of millions of Americans, what, 330, 340 million of them, I think the majority of Americans would look at the guy and think, how the hell is this man the president? How the hell is this man in charge? Maybe nobody, you know, maybe nobody is. And they'd kind of be right, wouldn't they? I mean, look at, like we said, John Kirby and what's going on with Israel and them just ignoring the U.S. State Department. So I think it goes very deep. And there's two separate questions there. And of course, if you think it's all about stopping Trump at any cost, and remember, Michael, Trump only serves one term, right? He, he can only go to 2028. It's not like Trump is a young man. He'd have two terms. He's groomed a successor. He hasn't. And I think that there has to be some part of the Democrats now that think the long game. The problem for them, of course, is that Trump wants to throw a fair few of them into prison. I think the reason why they didn't get behind Newsom probably when they should have is because they there was a bit of hopium going on, right? Um, Trump will be stopped from running again by some court somewhere. I mean, plausibly, it doesn't seem like it. I mean, the Supreme Court is stacked with conservatives. Why would they listen to what Colorado has to say? So in all likelihood, he is going to run. So I think it's been a really big political miscalculation here. But like I say, the consequences of a second Biden presidency are almost psychological with regards to their importance and people's um, disintegrating, eroding belief in American democracy. I think he would get an initial boost just by the fact of beating Trump, right? Because, you know, a lot, lots of the doubts would, would, would dissipate quite quickly if he won an election, because that's an impressive feat in and of itself. But then, yeah, potentially by the end of the you know, fourth year, I mean, he might just not do much public speaking by that point if he's not got a restand. Maybe just go into the background. But yeah, all very depressing. It doesn't really uh, speak very well of the American Republic. Let's go to our final story. Less than two years after launching his show with massive fanfare, Piers Morgan is leaving Talk TV. Some news about me and this show. I think it's good news. This is going to be our final regular broadcast here on television. But Piers Morgan Uncensored is only going to get bigger. The truth is that many millions of you are watching us on YouTube every day and across our other digital platforms. So much so that cutting short our big interviews and debates to squeeze them into a single hour with commercials no longer makes any real sense. As you can see there, or as you saw there, Piers Morgan is trying to make this seem like a positive choice. This is good news. Um, he gave more details in an interview with Semaphore. So he said, I've just decided that I no longer want to create my show for linear television. I just want to go full digital globally. There's something quite anachronistic about a show like mine still trying to create old-fashioned TV for a pre-scheduled time slot each night for a relatively small audience when we're getting such gigantic audiences digitally. So he's saying, no, well, we're not doing the linear TV because it's going so well online and uh, linear TV is too, too restrictive. 
Um, so we're going to sort of liberate ourselves and, and go over to YouTube fully. Um, Guido Fawkes has a different read on the move. They suggest that Piers Morgan has been sacked by talk TV owner Rupert Murdoch. Um, they say the host's spin doesn't add up. In the article, they say they have it on good authority um, that Rupert Murdoch personally made the decision to let Morgan go. And they write this. Talk TV is being paired back. The single biggest budget line item was Piers, and he wasn't delivering an audience to match his ego. The dream of a global Piers show broadcast in London, going out in Australia and the US, simply didn't work. Fox News didn't want to touch Piers. Australian viewers didn't care for the frequent British Z-list guests. The big-name interviews that would pull audiences in all those markets were too few and far between. The show was at first downsized, and after two years of mostly losing to Nigel Farage on GB News, dropped. Aaron two different representations of Piers Morgan going from talk TV over to YouTube. Um, which, which version do you believe? You could make it work as a YouTube show, and it could be very successful. Um, it's true to say he's had a massive impact. He has big guests on Cristiano Ronaldo, Andrew Tate. They've had massive numbers. Um, you know, I think a couple, a couple of million subscribers he's managed to build up. So it could become a major YouTube channel. The point is, and this is what's alluded to in that Guido Fawkes piece, is that Piers Morgan, legacy media, he's very accustomed to huge budgets. He had a massive contract, by the way, when he went over to um, the murder corporations in 2022, because of course he also has a simultaneous column in the Sun, Sun newspaper. He has a massive contract there, which by the way ends in 2025, and I think they probably said, we're just not going to renew it, mate. He likes the big budgets. He likes the big paydays. Um, he needs resources. It's very much a legacy media, Walter Cronkite-style TV operation. Uh, could it work as something much more lightweight? Of course it could. Look at Tucker Carlson, this whole Tucker Carlson network, TCN, you know, doing an interview with Putin, um, did an interview with, uh, uh, quite recently, he's done lots of major interviews with really, really big political figures. Um, he wants to do one with uh, Zelensky too. You know, Morgan could do something like that, free, freewheeling around the world, talking to these sort of big figures, um, but it has to be very lightweight. He'd earn less money and it wouldn't be in a cozy London studio. And I think given his legacy media background, you know, he worked for The Sun, he was editor of The Mirror, he went to work at a US network. He, he probably doesn't want to do that. He probably thinks that's quite, you know, he worked at ITV, GMB. Uh, but I could be wrong. He, he might be willing to take a major pay cut, have to work twice as hard, and not have the same kind of allure and status he's had his entire professional career. I doubt it. So it's possible. What he's saying is possible. Uh, the question is, of course, whether he signed up to do that. And finally... What he's talking about, like a YouTube channel, would have made so much more sense for um, Rupert Murdoch. I don't know why he didn't do that. Just start a news brand around Piers Morgan. We'll have a YouTube channel. You'll do some things to camera. We'll have a podcast. Lots of social heavy stuff. You're not going to be earning the kind of money we're going to offer you like they did in 2022, but it'll be a really big thing. Your profile will be huge, and let's renegotiate things in a couple of years' time. He could have done that. You know, he could have he could have done that. They've chosen not to. I think it really underscores actually how much Rupert Murdoch has lost touch with the reality of the media industry. You know, they're cutting loose Piers Morgan and talk TV is going to be what Mike Graham and James Whale. Really? It's almost humiliating how badly that operation has failed compared to GB News. Um, GB News looks professional. I know there's lots of gaffes, lots of screw ups, you know, Lawrence Fox saying, saying the most stupid things on air, but it physically looks very professional. Whereas we did a story a few days ago about, you know, James Whale and um, a former trade union leader 
Um, and the whole thing was just a disaster. People who are watching this can check that out on our YouTube channel. We, we, we did that story, I think, last Tuesday. You know, it looks very different and it's clearly failing. And I think Morgan and Murdoch parting ways like this is also an admission of failure, not necessarily for Morgan, but actually more for Murdoch and Talk TV. Talk TV is the failure here. They can't afford what they're giving Morgan, given the fact they aren't getting this big linear TV audience. But I also don't think that on YouTube he's going to be uh, he's going to be the, the the full nine yards. I don't think he'll go all in Tucker Carlson style. I, call, I could be wrong, of course. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where sort of the YouTube dynamic takes him in terms of politics. Um, let's wrap up there, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining me this evening, Michael. My pleasure. Uh, I just want to make a quick point as well about the media, Michael. Isn't it incredible? Yeah, you know, we we've had two two world leaders um, in the last what forty eight hours. One who can't complete a sentence or who doesn't know, you know the difference between Mitterrand, who died almost 30 years ago, and Emmanuel Macron, and another who was giving thousand-year histories of Russia, as eccentric and bizarre as they were. Guess which one the media was telling us two years ago was close to passing away? That tells mm. you something about the disinformation going on out there uh, and, and the feelings over facts. Um, and that's why I love you as a journalist, Michael. You don't indulge in any of that nonsense, the speculation, you do the detail, you do the, the high value information, and I love you for it. I love you too, man. I'm going to go now and uh, take some ibuprofen and have some honey in my tea. Um, thank you for joining me this evening. Uh, thanks, everyone, for watching. We'll be back on Monday. Hopefully, I'll be a bit more sprightly. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.